This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you to our God's Honest Truth Storytelling Night. Um, as you all know, many of you have been here before. It's why you've come back to hear the stories again. Every quarter, we try to have the opportunity for you from the congregation to come up and tell stories about your lives. And I think this is, uh, we're, we're now coming around, and this is our um, seventh one, I believe, that we're doing, which is great. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a real, it's, it's really wonderful that we've been doing this and that people are still signing up to actually uh, tell their stories, <laughs> which I wasn't sure that they would over time. And just to reiterate the purpose of this, the reason why we do this is honestly because uh, as a large church, we don't often have the opportunity to really get to know each other on a deeper level. And so the idea is, is that by hearing these stories, we get to find out wonderful things about each other that we didn't know, and it helps to really foster community together. And so tonight, we have come up with a theme, and as you know, if you've been here, we do a theme each time that, uh, we, that we have our storytelling evenings. And tonight's theme is, this is why I do what I do, stories of my life's work. And you're gonna hear from four different people. When we first started these, by the way, uh, I brought in like, I had like seven speakers, and it went like an hour and a half. So um, we've really, we figured it out that actually four is about just, just about right for the number of speakers who we want for an evening. And so um, that's why we have less now, is because it gives more time for the people to tell their story, and we're not quite so pressed on time. So this evening, we are going to start tonight with uh, Mike Beecher. He's going to come up, and he's going to tell his story. Or actually, no, it's not you. It's Kevin Carroll. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Sorry about that. Kevin, you're, you're up first. Come on up. That's why I have a bulletin or a bro- like a, so that I know what's going on. <laughs> Kevin's going to go first with his story, Small Moments Where God Operates. Welcome, Kevin, to the stage, please. Uh, I'll kind of play around with it a little bit. I'll be up and down, probably. Let's start on the stool, and then we'll see how it goes. Uh, f- for those of you that don't know me, uh, hi, I'm Kevin Carroll. Uh, I, my, I and my wife and my, uh, our two children, Wes and Grace, have been members of uh, First Press for 18 years. Uh, you might have seen us uh, either playing or singing in the chapel uh, as part of uh, Compass, or you might have seen us uh, playing in the brass ensemble here in the sanctuary. Um, we've been, my wife and I have been very busy in a lot of things in this church over the years, uh, but music tends to be central to what we do. Um, so when I was preparing my story, my first reaction was, what do I talk about? Uh, I really never had a Moses in the burning bush kind of moment where that determined my path. Um, I was fortunate to have some uh, influential people in my life, uh, like my high school band director, uh, or my grandmother who played piano uh, at family parties. And I've had some pretty cool experiences uh, w- with music over my life. and. And though inspiring and humbling, um, these were not epiphanies. Um, I think that what inspired me was more the subtle 
actions, subtle moments uh, taken by others. Um, that I'd like, and I'd like to share a few short examples with you if you'll indulge, indulge me. So my formal music education began at the age of 10 and where I learned to play trombone, but it almost ended as quickly as it began. Uh, about three months in, I went up to my mom and I said I wanted to quit. Um, she asked why, and I replied that it was because I wasn't any good at it. Uh, now, I wasn't lying. I wasn't good. <laughs> I really wasn't. Um, and she could have let me quit. And instead, she said she'd make me a deal. She said, okay, you can, at the end of the year, you can quit. However, I want you to do everything that your teacher told you to do. And do you know what that means? I said, yes. She said, which is practice every day. So begrudgingly, I accepted the terms. I accepted the deal. Uh, and you know, needless to say, I got better. I, I really enjoyed what I was doing. My skills improved. And I started enjoying playing music. Uh, I was even pretty good. For the first time in my life, I felt I was good at something. And keep in mind, I, I come from a family um, that is, uh, I have about 15 male cousins. And I'm kind of in the middle. And of these male cousins, I have some that are, actually most of them are amazing athletes. Um, I have a cousin that's a three-time state champion wrestler. I have another cousins, cousins that are all area baseball and basketball and football and Big Ten you know, scholarship earners. And yet my proudest, or I should say one of my highlights, was one year in Little League getting a game ball which they give out for your highlight for the year, right? And it said, four walks. <laughs> I was 0 for the season, but I got four walks in a game. That's the best I did. So, so really, for, uh, for the first time in my life, it, it, you know, feeling good at, and it being like, that I could, I could do something really well, it made me feel good. Um, but I should also note that my mom's not a musician. Um, like I said, my grandmother is really the only musician in the family. And um, she just knew what I, she knew me. She knew what I was capable so uh, capable of. So thank God that my mom uh, didn't let me give up on myself. Later, I attended uh, Brother Rice High School in Chicago, which had a very good band program. Uh, one of the students of the band was a, a, a junior named Mark. Uh, he was already a very accomplished trombone player, and I looked up to him a lot. Um, now, most juniors. If you've ever taught or been around high school students, or maybe remember back when you were in high school, uh, most juniors can't be bothered with freshmen. Um, but one day, during my freshman year, Mark came up to me and said, hey, Kevin, you're a pretty good player. You should take private lessons. So I did. I looked up to him. Um, later that year, Mark came to me and, uh, with a, a cassette tape. We all remember cassette tapes. Cassette tape of Bill Watrous. Now, other than uh, Gordon in the audience, does anybody know who Bill Watrous is? <laughs> Bill Watrous, oh, of course you do. Bill Watrous is a legendary trombonist with uh, remarkable skill and range. I had never heard anything like that before, uh, and I got hooked. I got hooked to music and hooked to trombone playing in particular, and I, I wore that tape out. Uh, to this day, I credit Mark uh, for inspiring me to become a musician and a director just from that, those acts of kindness. Uh, fun fact, Mark, uh, to this, in this today, is a, is a band director at Addison Trail High School. He's still doing it and giving back to, to uh, the next generation. 
Uh, he's also our state's president for music education. So thank God for, that Mark was there for me when I was a young freshman um, in high school. So these two stories kind of illustrate some of the small ways I think that God has moved in my life uh, and set me on a music teaching path. Uh, but staying on the path hasn't been easy. Uh, it's not as easy as that. You know, the, the, the movies, they show you this nice, now, every, now everything's going to be fine. Well, you know, it's not always that easy, as we all know. Um, the teaching profession can wear you out emotionally and, and mentally. Uh, it can be frustrating. It can be exhausting to the point of uh, you wonder why you do it. Uh, but it can also be wonderful, hopeful, and uplifting. Um, those wonderful moments, especially, I should say, the potential for these wonderful moments are the, are the reasons why I continue to do what I do. Um, so let me share a story, if, if I may, of a, of a student that helps me remember what I, why I do this. Um, over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of students. Uh, some come from privilege, some from poverty, and a lot that are in between. But so far, my favorite story is from a student I taught at uh, St. Patrick High School in Chicago. He's a student named Marquise, uh, who lived in Rogers Park with his aunt and his sister. Now, he lived with his aunt because his mother was in and out of drug rehab and his uh, dad was in and out of jail. Um, he did have a family members that uh, helped him out, and, and a generos thanks to the generosity of one of his family members, he was able to get piano lessons starting in seventh grade. That's awfully late to be starting music, is seventh grade. A lot of students start much earlier than that. Um, to give you an example, my, my own son started piano lessons when he was four. So if that, if that tells it gives you an idea. But most students don't start that, that late in life. But otherwise, you know, other than that, he didn't have much. Um, coming from my fortunate upbringing, I couldn't imagine what that was like to, to have to go through. But the thing is, you would have never guessed it, um, his home situation, by interacting with him. He was the most pleasant, positive, and joyful person to be around. He refused to let the bad situations of his life dictate his, his happiness uh, or his goals. His sophomore year, Marquise decided to learn saxophone. And again, this is starting really late in life. Most of the students have been playing saxophone for six, five, six years. But Marquise took to it like a duck to water. Uh, by his senior year, he was one of the top players around the Chicago area uh, and received a full scholarship um, to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, uh, where he studied music education. And this is one of the top music schools around. Uh, he's now actually back in Chicago as a music teacher. And with all that he's been through, uh, you know, he continues to inspire me to be a better teacher. Um, okay, my notes, there we go, <laughs> sorry. So teaching and performing music has led me on some incredible adventures and uh, given me some amazing experiences. I've gotten to perform with wonderful musicians, uh, including multiple Grammy winners. Um, I've also performed throughout much of the United States and in Ireland. Um, I have had an opportunity to perform at Chicago Symphony Center, at Chicago Theater, at uh, Soldier Field and Comiskey Park. And I even, uh, a couple years ago, got a chance to conduct my own, my own children on the stage at Carnegie Hall. Um, these experiences left a significant impression on me and are the ones I try to give back to my students. Um, but I think it's the small moments like encouragement, kindness, generosity, and positivity that are perhaps more meaningful. And I think that's where God operates, at least for me. Thanks.
Thank you. <coughs> All right. I think I'm going to get it right this time. Next up on our docket for tonight. <laughs> Next up on our docket for tonight is Mike Beecher, and his story is entitled "The Work of the Holy Spirit." Will you welcome him to the stage? All right, you ready? Oh, yeah. I threw my back out on Saturday. It's a little tender. Okay. Good evening. I'm Mike Beecher, and currently I've been the president of Chicago Paper Testing Laboratory for over the last 15 years. I know you're going to ask, wait, I'm going to start my timer. You don't want to screw this up, get it science. Um, what could you possibly test paper for? Well, I'll bet each and every one of you has touched paper today. Yeah, I bet you have. We haven't all went digital, and I'm sure there's Kleenex, and I'm not going to mention another item that might be employed. But uh, it's an interesting science. Our, our, our company, when I first got there, we were doing mostly printing problems, and we had Reader's Digest, we had Jostens, the yearbook manufacturer. We tested all their paper. We did Time Life. and. Uh, I kind of expanded the business to go into the fast food industry. So <laughs> over the years, we test McDonald's. We've tested Chick-fil-A. We've tested Sonic. We've test I can go through a whole list. Our current uh, clients now that are on a regular basis are Burger King. We test all of Burger King, Dunkin' Donuts, test all of Wawa, and I'm now stuck in a project from the Canadians called Tim Hortons. All right, yeah, I'm about to take on another one too, but anyway, um, what do we test for? What do I do with my life? I get up, go to work at five, and then turn on the machinery. We, you can test paper for physical properties, tensile, tear, burst. You can test paper for its brightness quality, its whiteness quality, its color, its opacity, its gloss. You test paper for grease resistance. You test it for uh, its WVTR value, which is water vapor transmission. I don't want to get too technical here. I know this is tough, you know. But it's mostly physical silence, or science. I do uh, fiber analysis. I had to be sent away to a school which was a lot of fun when you're with a bunch of paper people and all we're studying is fibers because that was, yeah, what am I doing? I got a week, right, you know, yeah, yeah bleach sulfate. I really, really care, you know. Um, but there's a lot of uses and we have tested uh, internationally. I have trained people from McDonald's for the uh, Germany for their, they have segments like so for, you know, Japan, Korea, and places where they have McDonald's. And, you know, I've, I've trained that woman. Um, and it, it was life, you know, got me through. You know, not, probably not the most glamorous, didn't save any souls, you know. But it put money on the money in my bank account, and, and things were good. Um, 
That's not my story, though. My story happens to happen right here in this place. Yeah. I wish I had my piece of paper. I can't believe when I came back here. Um, my greatest joy is being here and offering the opportunity to have a Bible study. Bible study, Mike, it's all in Greek. Yeah, well, it was originally written in Greek. What do you want? Uh, yeah, because why is that? Because I grew up Catholic, okay? I had 12 years of Catholic education. And for those of you who don't know, that means I have a religion class and you're graded on it every, you know, right through the year. However, when you get to high school, it doesn't really count into your GPA. Okay, just for, you know, that fact. But, uh, so I grew up that way. But when did I get my Bible? I didn't get my Bible to freshman year. Now, for those of you who don't know, a Catholic Bible contains more books than we, what, what we currently use. And we studied it, but we didn't study it. We glossed it, the dates, the names, give me the seven prophets, tell me who are the judges. I mean, we never really studied it. And so what had happened, we, I was blessed with two sons, and my wife was searching for a church. I was, of course, I had him baptized Catholic. You know, Monsignor Fitzgerald over at St. Athanasius Nevinson, man, we had that done. And it came time to go to school, and I went over, because we were living in Buffalo Grove, and I talked to Father Murphy at St. Mary's at that time. And after leaving that, I decided they were going to public school, because I wasn't going to put, and I'd met so many Irish priests, and you know, all my life. When I was in school, I was an altar boy, an acolyte. I served all the way through my senior year. I served at our, with our parish priest for mass there. I served up at the Carmelite Monastery, cloistered nuns with Monsignor uh, McAuliffe, and then the, I served with the bishop a couple times during high school over at the cathedral. Um, I was pretty much really Catholic. You know. So to make this long story short, I still got time. Um, my wife, who became very active here, she taught uh, Sunday school for the kids. There came a time at about the time my youngest was five and my oldest was seven, and she said to me, Mike, can you come sit with the youngest one because I've got a conflict on what's going on here. And if you just sit with them right out there in the pew, at nine o'clock mass at that time. And I said, ah, it's my son. I'd do anything for my son. So I gave up my freedom because after I graduated college, I have a huge gap from when I was going to church because at the end of that time when I graduated Assumption, I thought I had it all down. No big deal. I've got it, my diploma, I'm saved, I'm going, you know. All right, so I came and I sat and at that time, I mean, I, had, I shouldn't say it like that. I had come to church for Christmas and Easter and Lent like a good Catholic boy all those years after she joined here, but that was it with Dr. Martin. And then when I get to sit out there, it's Dr. Thompson. And every, every uh, at 9 o'clock, he would say, if you, if you want to be a member of this church, there's only two things you have to do. You have to believe that the 
Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you have to believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. Oh, man, two things, man. It was a lot easier than being a Catholic, you know. Hey, you know, <laughs> I'll check that off. Dr. Thompson, I checked it off on the list after about six months sitting with my son, and Dr. Thompson called me, and he said, come on in. So I went in, and I sat down, and so the first thing I said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, basically it's the government. And I thought, yeah, you got popes, cardinals, bishops. What, what do we got here? Well, we have a general assembly, and we have a moderate. I'm thinking, okay, that's cool. And then he said, uh, and that's about it. But he says, what I want you to do is go home and read the book of Romans. And he's pulling this Bible out, and I go, ha, ha, doctor, I got a Bible. You know, I got my Catholic Bible. So I went home and read it, and then I called him, and we met. And of all the books to give somebody to read about being a Protestant, you know, Romans is good, but we should cut it down into passages because it's extremely hard. And a lot of people get tripped up on it. And the only reason I know that is because that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. That book that was never open to me, the same thing that TC gives out to those kids on confirmation every year, and he says, here it is. Read it. Look at it. So I got involved immediately in a Bible study with uh, Dr. Adele Strative, or not, she wasn't a doctor at that time, Adele Strative, who started a men's club Bible study. And for the last 35, 36 years, even before I've been a member, I've been attending that or leading it. And so what I do now, and up until the last five years, I've led uh, Bible studies. I've given an opportunity, an opportunity to people to come and look at scripture, and he can't get offended by me. I got no degrees in theology. I got, I'm not, you know, and share our thoughts. Because when we share our thoughts, we learn a lot. And that makes our inner soul and our search for redemption so much better. Okay, because there's no cut, cookie cutter method to find salvation. There's no one way. God comes to each and every one of us specifically for each person. I was told as a young child that uh, way back, probably first grade, second grade, I had to be Sacred Heart, that you had a guardian angel and that God was always with you. Because if God forgot your name, poof, you were gone. Oh, really? So I've had a different kind of relationship when I, when I talk to the guy. I don't have to always, I mean, I say my prayers at night, we say it at grace, say it in the morning, thanks Lord, let me have another day. But it's always kind of like a conversation going on all day. It's kind of like when you're in a car, when you're in your car and you just got cut off and you say, Lord, what we could do, you know, we'd really like to do something here, you know. But I mean, it's always been that way and I've been very blessed that way. But this is the place, right here, this church, my home, this is what the Spirit worked. And I think about the years I wasted. And that's all I have. Thank you very much. Now, one thing I forgot to mention, um, as 
uh, I was getting started tonight is that following this, we will have a reception out in the narthex for all of our speakers this evening. So hopefully you can go out and get some cake because we still have a lot of cake left over from the Reza Aslan event. Um, so we definitely need to get some of that cake down. So please feel free afterward. To, to, to go out afterwards and talk to the speakers uh, to, and talk to them about their stories and have a piece of cake as well. Our next story this evening comes from Don Rowley and it's entitled Spending Life Gripping a Basketball, but it's the other way around. Welcome him to the stage, please. I spent most of my life standing and I'm not going to be sitting now. Um, and I will say that this is kind of an awesome opportunity. I really appreciate it. Um, I spoke in front of 500 freshmen at Hersey yesterday. It didn't bother me a bit. Uh, I've been nervous about this for two weeks, so <laughs> let's, let's just hope it comes off, um, and so on. So for those of you who don't know me, um, I taught math at Hersey for 39 years. Uh, I was a head basketball coach uh, there for a long time. Um, I just finished my 47th year of coaching and I'm going back for 48th year as a volunteer. Um, my wife uh, has been a French teacher, retired now, um, mostly at South Middle School. We have two sons who are local educators as well, athletic directors in the area. Uh, and because of them, we have five grandchildren who are nearby and so on. Uh, we've been members of First Pres since 1983, uh, married 49 years, etc. So in light of that and that setting and our family with some pretty serious needs, why in the heck am I still coaching basketball? That's the question. Um, to give you a little background, which probably was the beginning of my motivation, uh, I grew up in Park Ridge. I was always playing athletics of one kind or another, loved the competition, probably because of my dad, um, and so on. And uh, primarily, I played baseball and basketball. And uh, when I got to high school, I was a strapping five foot one, 105 pound freshman. And so I wasn't very big, and I sure was slow. And I, uh, while I made the teams, I really never got a lot of playing time. Uh, I never fulfilled my basketball or my athletic experience because I didn't get to play a lot. And I think that was kind of a, an initial motivation for me to get into coaching. Um, after graduating from Maine East, Maine South wasn't open yet, um, and Illinois four years later, where I met my wife, uh, I came to Hersey as a strapping 21-year-old fresh-faced math teacher and began my career. I couldn't even get a coaching job uh, right away because Hersey was brand new. That was 50 years ago. And as you might know, Hersey's celebrating its 50, 50th anniversary right now. Um, but all the positions were taken. Uh, people had transferred from other buildings. They were all uh, organized and so on. And so um, finally, the fourth year, I got a coaching job, coaching basketball, and I've been coaching ever since. And as I worked my way up the ladder and eventually became head coach, I began to realize that coaching was not what you would see on Friday night for the most part. And 
You know, also, another factor here, which I never thought of until a couple hours ago, one season I kept track, and I think the pay for coaching was about a dollar and a quarter an hour. So there you go. And now, as a volunteer, it's exactly zero dollars an hour. Um, but coaching is, uh, you know, especially head coaching of a, a large major sport program in high school, it's organization, it's rosters, it's media requests, it's meetings, it's personnel issues, it's scouting reports, it's practice planning, it's scheduling, and of course it's criticisms. And it's now, the way it's evolved, it's spring programs, summer programs, fall programs, it's feeder programs. I think that when I was a head coach, I was doing something 49 weeks a year for coaching to make my program better and to serve my, my athletes. Um, what I found out as I, I continued to coach was that coaching is a lot more than all that stuff. Coaching is about relationships that you have with your players, many of which I've known since third grade, some of which are 61 years old. Coaching it helps players, and my wife and I have been involved in this, get through their sometimes difficult teenage years. It's about watching them grow as people, as students, getting their jobs professionally, becoming husbands and family members, and so on. Coaching is relationships. To give you an example of a relationship, one of many, I'll tell you the story about Mike. Mike, a really good basketball player, it's going back 30 years ago, and an even better person. For whatever reason, uh, his mother was always on his case. He never could please her. She had these expectations for him as a student, as an athlete, and he, he, she was always on his case. And he was being recruited all over the country as a Division I basketball player. One day, Mike came to me, and we had, we had no other previous conversation that day, and out of the clear blue, he walked up to me and he said, you know, coach, I got a four-state rule. And I looked at him like he was from another planet. What in the world are you talking about, Mike? Well, when I pick a school here, when you help me pick a school, I need to have at least four states between me and my mother. <laughs> Absolutely true story. And so as the recruiting process went on, we did find him a Division I scholarship at a very prestigious university which was four, more than four states away. So Mike goes to college, and guess what? It didn't make any difference. She kept calling his coaches frequently to find out what his shortcomings were or why he wasn't playing more. And it got worse than that. She called his room every Sunday morning at 6 a.m. to find out if he was in his bed and if he'd been out partying the night before. And you know, this is before cell phones. So that was the only phone he had, and so he was stuck. How did Mike react to all this? As he finished his college years and came back to the Chicago area, he really struggled. He got into some serious problems. And without getting into any details, uh, he had to go through some very big-time counseling to straighten himself out as a person. He actually lived with my wife and I for a while. And now, fortunately, he married a wonderful woman. He's the father of a fine young lady, and he's got a decent job. And I still see Mike uh, every couple of months, and maybe I play the role of a mentor or an advisor 
but mostly I play the role as a cheerleader for him because he's such a great person. And, and like I said, that's just one of the relationships that I've had over years with players. And one of the major things that coaching is all about. Coaching for me is about getting players to realize their potential both as basketball players and as people. To see in them what they don't see in themselves, to stress values and how they should conduct themselves and so on. Um, and what goes along with that is to convince them that they are role models. They are role models because they are very successful athletes and other people who can't do what they do look up to them. Little kids are in the driveway saying, well, I'm going to be Michael Jordan, but somebody else is going to be Sean Dwyer, who's on our team. Um, and they are representatives of our program. They're representatives of their family. Uh, you know, teachers look at them as athletes and certainly judge them that way. Uh, and, and there's representatives out in the community. So we talk to them all the time about that and stress values. Um, Another facet that we really try to emphasize as coaches is that they are part of a team. And not everyone can be the leading scorer or the best rebounder, but everyone can bring their effort and play their role every day as part of the team. And they kind of have to give up their own individual identity for that. And it's just what we all do in our lives, whether it's our family team or our team at work or our team at some of the groups that we're in, we all play a role, and I think basketball, or coaching in general, is an early lesson in teamwork for them. Um, my players also, I, I really emphasize to them how fortunate they are to grow up in communities like surround this area, and the opportunities that they have to play basketball. And because of that, I get them very involved in philanthropic ac activities. Um, we've helped uh, kids from distressed homes. Our players are part of the SOS program at Hersey, which Alex featured last Sunday in his sermon, Service Over Self. And most recently, my players have been part of what's called Timothy's Ministries. You can look it up online. Tim was a former player at Hersey uh, back in the 90s, and about 15 years ago, he was tragically killed. And his mother, dealing with the stress and so on about Tim's death, uh, knew that Tim was very concerned about homeless people. And she started Timothy's ministry about 15 years ago. And the thing has morphed into this amazing organization that now meets weekly with homeless people, gets a bus, and brings them out to the suburbs, feeds them meals, and so on. So our players are involved in... Uh, collecting clothing for them, personal items for them. And then on a Sunday in February, it all comes together at St. Peter's Lutheran Church here in town, and our players are involved in setting out all the clothing. As the people come in off the bus, they can choose whatever they want. Setting up with their parents' meals, cooking for them, serving the meals, interacting with them, cleaning up. It's an amazing experience. There's a program and so on. But Timothy's Ministries, amazing. I've seen my players, like I said, become husbands and fathers and community members. Many of my players uh, have, they are firemen, 
their lawyers, their doctors, their financial planners, their teachers, and those are just some of the professions that uh, I've realized that they've gotten into because of the relationships that I've had. Uh, their assistant basketball coaches, their head basketball coaches, such as John Camardella at Prospect High School, Brian Gregory at the University of South Florida, David Hess at Elgin High School, etc. But the bottom line, which I never talk about, obviously, in a public school setting, but I would talk about here, and I talk about it to my wife, is that for me, coaching is a Christian mission. Consistent with Alex's sermon on Sunday, it's servant leadership at its best. It is getting people to realize their potential as people, to give them values, and to go out into the community and continue those characteristics. I think for me, it's the ultimate helping experience. And so when you say, well, you've spent most of your life gripping a basketball, but really it's the other way around. Thank you very much. All right, so we have one more story for the evening. Um, so we're going to hear, you all know her quite well. It's Michelle Hollyfield, and um, she's not going to be talking about this tonight, but I do think it's important to say that what she does for our community is extraordinary, and I'm really glad that she has the opportunity to come up and to talk about her story tonight, Showing Mercy. So would you welcome Michelle to the stage? I might have to cheat a little. <laughs> um, good evening. Um, so tonight, um, the stories that we've been hearing are about what inspires our life's work. I try to live each day of my life centered around grace, mercy, and compassion. And the, my story tonight is a, just about a part of my life that has inspired me to try to live that way each day. In 1997, I was married to David Hollifield. While we often and plenty of times had many challenges, we also had many um, great times. We have three great children. We enjoyed family vacations, um, outings. We had lots of common interests. Um, David loved music, and he was a very talented um, artist and painter. In December of 1997, David suffered a perforated colon, which resulted in sepsis and ultimately a loss of his short-term memory. After that, he was unable to work, um, but our family adapted to his memory loss. And then from that time on, he actually served as Mr. Mom for our three children um, for many years. Um, but over the years, his um, physical and mental health declined um, due, unfortunately, to years of smoking and anxiety and depression and struggles with alcohol addiction. And then one Sunday night changed the course of our whole family's life. 
I was on my way home from a Bible study, um, and I got a call from one of my children. They said that David was very upset, and they were actually locked in a bedroom. I don't recall today um, whether David locked them in that bedroom or if they locked themselves in the bedroom, and I don't really remember what the issue even was, but I do know that David had been drinking. And as I approached the apartment, I was quite nervous, and I w but I knew I had to get my kids out of that situation. As I opened the door, I found David standing right in front of me with a baseball bat in his hand. Um, he tried to grab me, um, but thankfully I broke away and was able to get back out in the hall. And at the same time, my children ran out the other door that led into our apartment. Um, all the commotion caused our neighbor to come out of her apartment, um, thankfully, to help us, and we ended up spending the evening and night at her home. Um, and so our journey kind of began again. Um, being in a, the situation I was in brought a lot of feelings of loneliness and fear, isolation, uncertainty, um, David's increasing trouble with alcohol um, addiction and his f physical it, health issues were causing a lot of problems for our family. Um, I didn't really feel safe in our living situation. I also didn't really think that David, with his memory loss, was going to be safe living on his own. So we, we were in quite a problem. <laughs> Um, suggestions from many well-meaning people were to call the police or to just leave. I have a great appreciation today for families who are dealing and struggling through um, difficulties due to abuse and addiction. It seems like it might be an easy fix to just leave, um, but I'm standing here today to tell you that it really isn't that easy. Many of the agencies that help people with these issues are overburdened. Many of them have waiting lists. The definition of what is safe and is your family safe is very subjective. And my family had the added difficulty of David's cognitive disability. I struggled greatly with the balance between safety and compassion. David tried several 28-day treatment programs, and while they all worked for a while, honestly, our family was in survival mode because they didn't work forever. Um, I was very fortunate at that time to be connected with a social worker at the police department and also a very good friend who helped David get involved in some AA groups in the community. Um, but with David's short-term memory loss and his cognitive disabilities, the 12-step program was very difficult. Finally, after many attempts to fix the situation, fix David, fix all the problems, I realized that I really couldn't. And unfortunately at the time, because we were just trying to survive sometimes, I, um, I really wasn't seeing a lot of options that I thought were good. And unfortunately also David had violated some civil and criminal um, court orders concerning consumption of alcohol around our children and verbal abuse. So at that time I really didn't see any other option but to have him arrested. 
I had really never felt so alone or with my back up against a wall, but as a mom, my first instinct was to protect my children. So David did end up spending some time at Cook County Jail. I didn't ever really think that the criminal court system was the answer to my family's problems. So I was able to work with the social worker at the police department and the judge and the state's attorney to get David into a long-term care treatment facility in the city. And that, that program worked pretty well for, for a good amount of time. Um, unfortunately, until the day that they decided to give David some more freedom and he was able to leave the facility on his own and go out in the city. And unfortunately, the drinking started again. Um, his cognitive impairments, it, it's hard to say exactly what he knew he was doing and what he didn't. Um, but unfortunately, he, that ended him up in trouble again. And this time it was a longer stay at Cook County Jail. Once we were able to resolve all of his legal issues, he was able to leave the jail, um, and he did try to come home. And he was home for only two days, and it was clear that he just could not really assimilate back into our family. And he left on his own. He unfortunately found himself un ineligible for the PADS program due to his legal issues and with no place to go. Perhaps one of my greatest breaking points during that time was the morning that Susanna and I saw David sleeping on the street. I remember thinking to myself, what is going on in this world and in our community? And where's the compassion for the lonely, broken, sick, people in our world. By this time, David's physical health was at a critical state. His COPD meant that it often was difficult for him to breathe. His rheumatoid arthritis meant sometimes he could barely walk. And his short-term memory loss had really turned into more of some form of dementia. Thankfully, um, after a short time of him being on the street, um, a good friend and I were able to get him to the hospital. At when, when, um, from the hospital, he was actually admitted to a nursing care facility. Um, it was not luxurious in the least. And I, don't, I do not make any excuses for David's behavior, um, but the nursing home was really a nursing care facility for the downtrodden and voiceless in this community. Um, the kids and I made frequent visits to David. Um, he's able to go out and eat with us, out shopping, um, trips to the Botanic Garden because it was near there. Um, and his physical health, we struggled with that. But without the alcohol involved, um, things were, were pretty good. Eventually, though, the nursing home, because he was doing well, gave him more freedom. And so he was able to leave the nursing facility on his own for extended periods of time, like all day long, if he wanted to. And unfortunately, not surprisingly, the drinking started again. Um, and during that time, the kids and I did not hear from David for about six months. 
And for a lot of reasons that you can probably imagine, he had to leave the nursing home. Fortunately, with the help of a social service agency at that time, David was able to secure an apartment in the community um, as part of a program for people who are leaving nursing homes. He, um, the, the apartment ended up being just a few blocks from the kids and I, um, but we didn't hear from him for a few months. We, finally, he did call me after several months of him being in this apartment. And from that day forward, I actually helped him with his doctor appointments, his um, shopping, errands, bill paying, all of those types of things that he needed. He would call me probably 10 to 20 times a day, and that was in addition to the time that I would be at his apartment um, helping him out. It was a struggle because his dementia had really progressed, and he was still drinking. However, over the years, I did learn that I really felt that nobody really deserves to be all on their own with nobody to care for them. I felt at the time that maybe some people judged me, thought that maybe I wasn't a strong person because I was caring for this person that, quite frankly, I know, had done some terrible things. But as I said before, my story's really not about making excuses for David's behavior, but it's really about the brokenness that's all around us and really about our responsibility to bear burdens of others and to really find ways to restore our relationships. So one day in July of 2015, and I was visiting with David, he told me that he didn't think that he had very long to live. And we sat in silence for a little bit. And then we started kind of talking about all that had happened between us and the kids and how, how it affected everybody. And of course, it was a little bit his version, a little bit my version, and they weren't quite the same. But um, we ex in the end, we really expressed how sorry we both felt for all that had happened. And we call, I think we called a bit of a truce that day. Now, don't, get, don't misunderstand me. It was a truce with a person with dementia who's an alcoholic. And so maybe a little one-sided, maybe not. It's, it's hard for me to say. Um, however, I come to understand that I didn't have to fix David, but he deserved the same as any other person, somebody to be there for him. David spent the next months in and out of the hospital and his health steadily declining. Till one Tuesday morning, after he'd been discharged from the hospital the night before, um, Susanna and I decided um, to go visit him before she went to school. He wasn't doing very well, and so after Susanna went off to school, I went back to his apartment to be with him. I was a case manager, actually was planning to visit him that morning, and I was hoping she and I could get him to a different hospital. Unfortunately, he collapsed that morning in his apartment. The paramedics came and they put him on life support and transported him to the hospital. Um, he passed away the next morning, um, but surrounded by me and our children. And we were very thankful at that time that we were able to be there for him. 
So after David passed away, I really struggled with what I could have maybe done differently, what I should have done, maybe things I didn't do. And through all those years of struggle, I had witnessed so many broken agencies and institutions and people. And the things that I witnessed in the community and things I thought maybe should be a little bit different. And how as communities, we need to care for everyone, no matter the situations. It wasn't that I didn't have that desire beforehand. I mean, many of you here have known me for a long time. I cared about people, but being so close to these situations changed really the way I thought about everything. It informed the, how I spend my time. It informed how I think about things. What I choose is important. And it's really in the creating of new relationships, forgiveness, and finding ways to restore relationships that really change our world. That is why oftentimes you'll find me offering myself in service to others, cooking dinner for family night or for pads, working on my master's degree in restorative justice, or just being present for people, always looking for ways to improve the lives of those who've maybe fallen through the cracks. Broken people like David, like you, and like me. And I'd like to end tonight with a quote by Brian Stevenson. There is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness. Because embracing our brokenness creates a need and a desire for mercy. And perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You hear things that you might not otherwise hear, and you see things that you might not otherwise see. And you begin to recognize the humanity that resides in all of us. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna ask our storytellers now. I want you all to go out to the narthex. Go ahead of everybody, please. Because <laughs> if I don't say that, then you're not gonna go and everybody will be eating cake without you. <laughs> Can we give one more round of applause for everybody? So I want to thank you all for coming out. Um, every time that you all come here and you listen to these stories, I think you do something very, very special. You create a sense of community here that is, uh, you can't replace that with anything else. So I want to thank you for your willingness to be here. Our next storytelling night is in February. You'll be hearing from me probably a little bit after Christmas uh, as to the theme at that point in time. I didn't look it up again. I'm sorry. I'm really bad now about that. I usually tell you the next theme that's coming. But if you hear a story, and if you hear the theme and you want to tell a story, I hope that you will. It's open to everyone, whether you're a youth or whether you're 100 years old. Anybody can tell a story here. Uh, you just have to reach out and say, I want to do it. Thank you all again. Go eat some cake and uh, say thank you to them for their time. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, 
and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.